0: what's going on everybody welcome to the type one lifting podcast i have uh an amazing guest i've been kind of talking to him back and forth through instagram for the past couple of years and actually this is the first time we actually are talking to each other via video because you know face to face we can't do that right now so uh here is brendan schneider how you doing hey how's it
1: going
0: good good so how's how's everything going over in uh tennessee
1: uh life is good actually i've moved i'm in kentucky now oh, that's right uh, yeah Kind of been on my like u s tour lately um so I've been bouncing around, but I'm in Louisville Kentucky, um but life has been good. Kentucky has handled this better than a lot of states have um, in my opinion, so I think it's going well and um, people I know are staying safe, which is good,
0: yeah, so are you is it is Tennessee one of the states that letting people like go out to like the gyms and all that um, stuff
1: so Tennessee has a little more opening. I don't know exactly what the rule state to state is. I know we gyms are closed. Basically the only things that are open are gas stations, hospitals, grocery stores. Um, I think that's about it. And yeah. then on Monday they're opening up uh, PTs, non-elective surgeries, stuff like that.
0: Yeah. They, so I live in Georgia. they opened up pretty much gyms, hair salons, like all this stuff, so it's it's pretty interesting. I love to see like what happens.
1: Yeah, that's uh. I almost feel like Georgia. I think Texas might be opening up. Is like the they're like the testing grounds of what.
0: Yeah.
1: Is gonna happen here, yeah. so it'll be interesting. I think uh, our governors towards the weary side, which has paid off so far. So hopefully it continues to pay off.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, um, I, I would love to get into your diagnosis, uh, when you got diagnosed with type, uh, type one diabetes, cause actually I already know the story, but I, I want other people to know about it. Cause I actually listened to your, the Julie Foucher podcast that you're yeah. on. And so, yeah. yeah, I would love to, you know, have you talk about your, your, uh, diagnosis story.
1: Yeah. So I was 11 years old. I'd actually just turned 11. So it was February of 2004. Um, we were on a family vacation in Canada, so I grew up right near the border of Canada. So we would go on ski trips every February um, up to Tremblant, which is just north of Montreal. And on the way there, so this is going to be like the very stereotypical part of the diagnosis story. The way there, it's like a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour drive. I went to the bathroom, I think, like seven or eight times. Um, and growing up, we would go on long car trips all the time. So it wasn't this, like, new like, you have to hold it kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that raised some red flags to my parents, but neither of my parents are medical, so you don't automatically think your child has some, like, major diagnosis or anything like that. Um, While we were up there, though, they noticed, you know, more bathroom trips. I was drinking constantly. Um, They – neighbors who were with us actually ended up being my doctor at the time. A pediatrician was with us. And my other neighbor, whose mom was a nurse, were on the trip. And my parents were like, hey, like, we're noticing these things. And kind of the, like, flag, red flag went up. And they were like, you guys need to go to the hospital. Like, this is probably what it is. They had noticed I'd lost a bunch of weight. Um, I was never a super small kid, but I had dropped close to 20 pounds in, like, a three-month period. And so from the condo we were staying in, we went to this – tiny little ER, not pediatric related. I have like blurry memories of what happened. I do know it was negative 40 degrees, which always adds to the uh, excitement mm. when you can't even stand outside. Yeah. And we go into the hospital, they check my blood sugar, you know, with a normal like fingerprint, it just said high on it. So I think that was when it really said in for my parents like, this is going to be a road to go down. Uh, I still, the main thing I remember is because it's in military time. I remember the clock going like zero, 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 zero. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, meanwhile, I was like, my glucose was like in the 1300s. (sighs) Um, so they, because we were considered like four foreigners, um, from like an international standpoint, they gave me some insulin, pumped me with fluids. Basically told my parents, go back to the condo, load everyone in the car, and go back home and go to a children's hospital there. So that's essentially what we did. We got back. It was like 6 in the morning. We left both my siblings with my neighbors there because we, my parents didn't want to ruin their vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, loaded the car up, drove back home. We were home for like an hour or so. And then when it was about 45 minutes to the biggest children's hospital there, and from there actually got put on like three bag system and got my number dropped correctly. Uh, they more so stabilized me in Canada and were like, "You need to go back to the U.S. because the last thing you want is to go through this whole thing in a primarily French-speaking hospital." Yeah, and. So they uh, they made the right move there. Now being in medicine, like seeing how they handled it, mm-hmm. it makes a lot more sense to me.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But from the aspect to just be like, hey, we'll see you later. You don't know anything about what's going on. <laughs> Didn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. So did they admit you to like the ICU? Because the way, way when I used to work at the Children's Hospital, they admitted people, admitted the kids to the ICU for a couple of days. Or did they admit you for a couple of days? Or how did that work?
1: Uh, so I was admitted, I don't know if it was the ICU, that's like the piece of the story that, because um, I don't remember moving rooms, mm-hmm. but I think they may have had a specific like endocrine floor or a unit on the floor of the hospital that they admitted me to, but I was in for, I think it was three days, and it worked out really well because the group, the endocrinology group that took me on were incredible and they had multiple people. Their diabetes educator also had diabetes, so he let my parents like draw up insulin, draw, and then they would like drop saline. They gave him shots, and then they would slowly they got them to give me the shots before we left. I didn't really do any of my own injections, glucose testing at the very beginning. Um, being eleven, you're kind of in that like waiver point mm-hmm. of you want to be independent, but you don't know how to be independent. So that took, I would say probably close to like six months before I really started to take over some of myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But the group that had taken me on the doctor was like super old school, but she actually retired like three or four years after that. Um, But she was super straightforward with my parents, which I think is what needed to happen. She was kind of like, you know, this could go horribly wrong or you can do this correctly and things will be fine. Yeah. And I lucked out that I had two parents that took her advice and you know, we had our ups and downs like anyone does, but it, uh, they listened, they read up on it. They knew kind of front to back. There was this book they gave them that was like this thick. And I remember it had like a smiley face or something on the front. Um, and it was basically like written by parents four parents with diabetes and it was a thousand pages of like scenarios and what to do if this happens. And
0: very cool. I, I'd, I'd love to in- I'd be interested in that book you know, if you remember it. So
1: yeah, I think it's probably what, 15 years old now, yeah. 16 years old.
0: Yeah. It's probably on like his third revision or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I could find it. My mom likes to keep hang on to a lot of things. So
0: yeah. Nice. So is is there anybody else in your family that has diabetes or is it just you or like relatives or?
1: I'm the first one. So I uh, got to forge this path on my own um, in that aspect. They like now that there's kind of some more research behind what could potentially be a cause. um, I did have strep throat like six months beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I kind of followed that path that they're thinking with the whole viral illness then causing the mutated cell to mutate and then autoimmune. Um, so from the sound of it, that's what I'm guessing it happened That I was just predisposed and eventually it was going to happen. It just happened to be then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that stinks. But that's crazy that like, you know, for me, when I got diagnosed at like 34, just like a month before my 35th birthday, I was yeah. trying to remember – trace back of like when I was sick and I think I'm, I like, I like you had strep throat. I may have like a sore throat or something like that. And I don't really go to the doctor or anything like that. And I just, probably that's how it happens. So it's super interesting how that stuff happens.
1: Yeah. And it's always, you know, you, I probably knew something was wrong like months before, but you, it's really easy as a person to like, be like, Oh, it's gotta be this. And like move yourself on. Even at you know, the young age of 11, you're like, I don't want to tell my parents I'm going to the bathroom.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Because that's, again, it's like the age where they, during the week, wouldn't see me a whole lot because I was at school and then came home and did my homework. And then on the weekends, I would go play with my friends or I was playing sports. So the, like, extended period of time took a vacation because they didn't... They saw me that entire time, whereas before, kids are so busy. So it just gets lost in sort of the stream of things
0: yeah so how how was how was playing sports when you were younger and like the diet and and having diabetes and like were your parents there like pretty much all the time or like how did how did it work when you were playing sports
1: so it sort of evolved as time went by when i first was diagnosed i was rowing like in a boat rowing um somewhat competitively i like to say that my high school athletic career like i didn't peak until college is kind of my like I was just kind of going through just to do sports. I wasn't horrible, but I wasn't the best. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a rower on the Canadian national team who had diabetes and my mom reached out to him and luckily he answered the email. This was the early days of email also. um, And he kind of gave her the layout of, you know, you're gonna have higher blood sugars during the activity because of glycogen dumping and then you'll drop after, which is pretty much still to this day, exactly what happens with my numbers exercise wise. So at the beginning, they were super strict about like making sure my coaches had glucagon and making sure like everyone was ready in case something happened. And then as time went on and I got into high school and was doing my own sports and kind of managing my own diabetes, they sort of let me go Mm -hmm. in you know, telling people and make sure my coaches knew and I'm sure there was some behind the scenes talk that I never saw, but for the most part, all my friends knew what to do. You know, if I started talking crazy, they'd be like, Hey, you know, go test or, yeah, because I'm definitely, I have a few pretty stereotypical uh, low symptoms. So it people, when they're around me enough, start to figure out that, I'm talking crazy or I start sweating or I'll do strange things. Yeah. And it's usually consistent. Like every time since I was in fifth grade, the same things have happened.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you get mood swings at all? At, uh, when you, when you get like low or high or
1: I will get mood swings. When my number's high more so than when I'm low. I will sometimes sort of, I don't want to say get combative. Like if I'm really low, I'll like fight or flight almost.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Typically, it's, like, an attempt at flight, I would say. Every once in a while, it's probably fight. But you don't have, like, the wherewithal to, like, really fight back. It's sort of a strange – I almost try to explain it to people as, like, the out-of-body experience where, like, I know what I should be doing, but I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get that. I don't get super angry. I more so get quiet, I would say, when my number gets high. Um, I'm more so like internalized rather than externalized when my number's high. Yeah. Um, but low, I have more issues with lows than I do highs in daily life. So that's sort of been my, I have more information on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's mainly like high then usually on Sundays I get low because I'll over take too much insulin for like the pancakes because we usually eat pancakes like every Sunday, just like for like a whole yep. family thing. And obviously sometimes I take too much and it just drops and then like like we were ready to go out someplace and and I'm like my wife's like, Are you okay? And I'm like, you gotta drive and I gotta eat something. So it's it's yeah. just it's like you know, it's yeah I could tell when I'm low or sometimes like I don't think I'm low. And then I'll just see, like, one, one of them I just noticed is my eyes, like, skip. So if I go from, like, yep. right to left, it'll go from the right and immediately skip to the left. And it, then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, like, really low. So i got to get it checked out.
1: Yeah, I'll get, um, like, my easy check. So it was a friend of mine actually pointed this out a while ago, and I never noticed. But my pupils get really big
2: mm-hmm.
1: when I go low, which is probably where the vision comes in. And so I'll see, like, circles of light. So that was – that's kind of the like telltale sign. If I look at a light and I look away and I can still see the bulb that there's like no questions asked, I'm low.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's crazy, yeah. So um, So, when when in college, did you have like any like burnout phases or anything like that or what was –
1: So college, I think I almost kept myself too busy to have too much of a burnout Um, in school. Like I was – Nursing major, and then also played rugby for the school. I was training, like, started getting CrossFit. Then, I'm trying to think what else. I worked at like on campus, so pretty much I would like wake up in the morning, leave my house, maybe come back during the middle of the day. But I was sort of busy all through the day, and mm-hmm. it had been ingrained in my life enough that I stayed on top of it for the most part. But that being said. You know, you are a college kid, so it uh weekends, things like that. During the week I was pretty focused on what I needed to do. Um, but definitely lived somewhat of the typical college lifestyle in the uh weekends. But I lucked it out big time because being on the sports team, all the guys on my team knew that I was sort of the one to look after. Mm-hmm. So they weren't all like on top of me about everything, but they were very specific about you know knowing where I was, making sure I was all right. So I always kind of had backup in that standpoint. Yeah, I think it would have been very different had I not had good roommates and not had uh, sports like team members mm-hmm. to be on top of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I love the team aspect because like for example, for you. You know, you always got to be on the lookout for like other people. Like I had other people that had like disabilities too, and I was we're like all we're always like watching out for them, or like even on even like in the, during the game, we let them let the refs know like, hey, you know, this person is this or this, yeah. and so and even even the my, my lacrosse team I play for now, they're always like watching out for me on the field.
1: Yeah. So so it's uh, that part. I mean, there was times where like my coach always had glucagon and juice boxes. I would be like running down the field, he'd throw me a juice box. Because especially like with rugby being 80 minute games, usually I was good for like the first 50 to 60 minutes mm-hmm. and it was the last 20 minutes that if something was going to happen, it was going to be then
2: Yeah,
1: um, once the body starts to hit that like fatigue phase.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, um, it was interesting sort of navigating through because rugby is one of those sports where I couldn't wear my pump. So I was kind of balancing the highs with make sure I wasn't going low. Um, the last thing you running around being pulled with a pump on. So
0: yeah. So what what what's your like a normal level for you? Just like pre like pre game at all?
1: Or I usually typically it's around like one sixty one seventy would be like ideal. And then I would especially in college like sip Gatorade mm-hmm. throughout. Like I kind of figured out like forty carbs mid game was sort of my like sweet spot. So I'd make sure I finished half by halftime, and then the other half in the second half. Um, and I had like a special water bottle, like set aside for me. Yeah. But that's tends to be now like one sixty, one seventy. I'm in a good spot. I have to look at my training for the day to sort of decide exactly where I need to be. Um, but that, and then to this day, I'll like sip on a shake throughout training to just keep myself level.
0: Mm -hmm. So is that a carb, is it like a carb shake with like protein or like uh, electrolytes?
1: Yeah, so I actually this week or last week started sort of a cutting phase. Um, With this time at home, things are a little more controlled than they would in normal life. Mm -hmm. So my coach and I decided now's the time if we're going to lean out to do it when I have more control over my schedule versus less. So that involves mid workout 40 carbs and 25 protein 24 protein and some beta alanine and then i'm a big coffee drinker so i just put some coffee iced coffee in there and just sort of sip it throughout and it's been it's worked out really well yeah awesome and then i i don't necessarily have that post-workout high carb spike that i'm chasing with insulin yeah
0: yeah, I'm I'm always I'm, I've been working on that cuz I usually get out like when I finish working out, I'm usually like 260 like yeah. and I'm just trying to find ways to, you know, not be high. But lately since working working out from home, it's been a heck of a lot easier. My numbers have been like amazing. Yeah. So.
1: that uh the stress factor is huge. Yeah. Um and I've tested what your body does under stress probably more than the average person mm-hmm. should. Um so working at the hospital and things like that there's a lot of interesting like spikes and then you plummet and so i think now is a good time to test with things because we've cut out a lot of those factors that would normally affect the numbers
0: yeah so So what made you get into nursing
1: i think it's sort of a two-pronged reason so initially i thought i wanted to be a teacher I was like dead set. I was going to be a gym teacher because you know, that's what cool people do. Mm. And so I, my freshman year was undecided in my major, just started taking classes. And then I think from having to know like a base level of medicine, being a diabetic, like I think a lot of people with diabetes don't give themselves credit on like how much you actually know. Cause it's just daily life. Mm. But it's a lot of things that normal people have no idea. And so I think that played into it a little bit. And then my grandfather's a pediatrician or was a pediatrician. Um, And he, see, he worked until he was 78 or 80. Um, I guess he was a little younger than that, probably 75 when he was done, but longer than most people work just because he loved it. So growing up when we would go to their house, you and you always have, stuff at home and this is back in the day where you know drug companies give you all the free stuff and um, things were a little bit different so I think I was just always sort of around it and when I started laying down like I noticed I was really like science more so biology related and I was like well I want to work with kids I knew that but then it was a matter of laying down in what way do I want to work with kids And when, as I got interested in medicine and biology and I was like, wow, like I've lived this life. Why can't I then translate this over to other people's lives? And so that was sort of the path that led me there. And I lucked out that where I went to school had a somewhat newer nursing program. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was able to get into the program without having to add an extra year or anything like that Um, and then ended up with my bachelor's in nursing by the end of it
0: nice so so what what floor are you working at right now
1: so right now i'm on the iv team so we i told myself i'm sort of like mindset wise i like always when i start something be like i'm gonna have something that i'm like is my thing within this and so when i started out i was like i'm gonna get really good at ivs because i did one I liked the challenge, sort of my competitive mindset of like, I'm gonna do this once and it's gonna be done. Um, set in. So I originally worked on it, was like a med surge, but we specialized in endocrinology and sort of the diabetes aspect came in there. And, and we had GI and all sorts of other things. From that floor, I then went to an ER. So I worked at Labonder Children's Hospital in Memphis in the ER got a lot more experience there just because of the fast pace and things like that. Um, so then when I moved, I moved from the ER, when I moved to Louisville, I worked in the ICU, which was also pediatric for a little over a year and then made the switch over to the IV team about four or five months ago. Mm-hmm. So I've done, I've had my hands in a little bit of everything, um, which I think that's helped build sort of exactly what I want to do.
0: Yeah. So do you think that like using that like do you guys use an ultrasound machine when you guys do IVs or how does how does Sometimes it work? Sometimes we do. Yeah. Okay. So how do do you think you've gotten like a heck of a lot better doing IVs or finding like different ways of getting the the uh, needle into the vein?
1: Yeah. So it um uh, it's interesting in the effect of like as you get more comfortable with it. When I first started, I was super scared because you know you are causing pain and kids like to fight back and you know parents are nervous because their kids yelling. And so as you get comfortable, I think that's where the sort of flip happens. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, when you have this competitive mindset of like, I'm going to do this once and I'm going to get it, you start to take time and planning beforehand. Granted, there's been a lot of times where it's like someone hands you something and they're like, hey, we need this right now because you know we have kids coding, things like that, that you don't have the time to really plan. Mm -hmm. So I have set spots that I look when it's a matter of this needs to happen right now. When I have a little more time, I can kind of check for some weird places. Um, And the other beauty of kids is you get to do a lot of weird things that they don't get to do in the adult world, like start IVs and scalps on babies and the places like feet and things like that, that you don't really get to do in adults. But from that aspect, the other night, I started an IV upside down, so it's a uh, because we had a kid, you know, flipped over prone
2: mm-hmm.
1: to help with his lung exhalation. Yeah, and so it was a matter of like all your good veins are on the bottom side, and
0: yeah. you
1: can't flip them back just to start an IV. So yeah. I was upside down on the side of the bed.
0: Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, I've never seen it I've never seen an IV done on a scalp before. So I mean because yeah. I, I was work when I worked at the children's hospital, it would mainly be like feet, arms, maybe neck, but like never, never seen a scalp one. Those are like super yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, because yeah, little babies, if you notice, they usually have a huge vein like smack dab in the center of their head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And people forget that a vein's a vein. It doesn't matter where it is. And typically, babies are more mad about being held down than they are about actually getting stuck. Mm -hmm. So if they can't see what's happening, they tend to be calm and don't even move. Because I've had, you know, perfectly, we'll say well babies, they were sick enough to be in the hospital, but um, neurologically, they knew exactly what was going on. And you sort of get to the head of the bed, and you're behind them, so they can't see above you and it'll go in. Sometimes they'll like fall asleep in the middle of it. (laughs) Um, Kids are wild in the aspect of like the amount they can handle and bounce back from to me is exponentially higher than the adult population. Oh yeah.
0: I I completely agree. They, they are super resilient. So yeah. Yeah. So do you have any uh, aspirations of being like a diabetes educator or going to school, going back to school for that at all or.
1: There was a time like when I was kind of on the fence about what I wanted to do. I think right now my goal would be to get my master's and then eventually get my PhD and be a professor. I think that there's limited number of male pediatric professors in nursing schools, probably nationwide. Mm-hmm. From everything I've seen, I had a pediatric professor who was a male, and it's sort of, as a male, one of the few male nurses, like, draws you in because you are a minority in the hospital setting. Um, and it's just by nature that that's how it's happened. There's a significant amount of male nurses compared to, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. But I think that showing that you can work in pediatrics is a good thing because a lot of... The patients we see, unfortunately, don't have that sort of male figure in their life or they don't have a positive male figure in their life. And it's an unfortunate, like reality of what goes on in the world. So if you can be granted on the IV guy, so I'm probably not the positive role model in most people's (laughs) life, but it, uh, for the most part, like they have someone who, you know, shows they genuinely care about them in, you know, their families. They're also, so if you can sort of help with that role too, I think, I don't know what it will pay off in the end because I haven't seen a lot of these kids when they get discharged. I don't see them again, Mm -hmm. but I think it would pay off for them in the long run.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. When I was, when I was in the ER, I would always like welcome like the new onset diabetes kids, you know, let, let the parents know, you know and like like i said before but like my that is the reason type one lifting came about is from like a five-year-old girl and the mom thought it was a death sentence and so pretty much i was talking to them saying that you know everything's gonna be fine you know it's gonna be a little challenge in the beginning and i just thought i needed to do more and then you know lo and behold the shirt company came so
1: yeah yeah it's, it's uh um, i i get that call a lot of like can you come talk to this kid or mm-hmm. stuff like that so it sounds like it, uh, when you work in a hospital and you have diabetes, that's what happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they was some, some kid called, asked me if I was like a diabetic liaison or something like that. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, no. I'm just, I'm just some dude just like some diabetic just wants to help out and just, if you have any questions, just let me know. So
1: yeah. And then it, uh, like I think t-shirts are like the best way of speaking, like in a general standpoint, like not everyone has someone who has type one. Yeah in their life, in their family. But if you're walking down the street with a shirt that, you know, exemplifies what that is, it's not necessarily pinpointing yourself as like, hey, everyone, I have diabetes. But it's sort of like, oh, like reminds people that this is a thing. And, you know, it's also an area that needs support from the aspect of there's, I don't know if I'm the only type one, but I get like frustrated with type two.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which I'm sure I'm not the only one, but everyone, you know, it's that assumes they're both the same or it's a lot of the money goes that way because there are more people affected by it. But, you know, we're a little biased in the aspect of we want the money to go to, you know, our research, not theirs.
0: Yeah. So what's the biggest, biggest thing that people ask you since you're a diabetic, like like, between like type one and type two,
1: I get, I'm trying to think like the most, the craziest one I've gotten is new diagnosis kid. I was working in the ER, you know, went in to sort of talk them through sort of what the next few months were going to look like. And the mom and dad were dead set on the fact that if they gave their kids cinnamon. They were going to be okay. Like they didn't need insulin. They didn't, they were like, we don't need that stuff. They were like, we'll just eat cinnamon and it'll all be okay. And so I had a very, have a very long conversation with them about, uh, although I don't think cinnamon's bad, it's not going to call like solve your problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but the other one, I'm trying to think what I get more than that. Occasionally it's the, well, they don't want to do shots. Mm-hmm. Like you get a lot of the. I'd say that's the hardest one of like, you know well i don't want to do that and it's sort of that like there's i don't want to do that either like if i could just not you know deal with needles i wouldn't but it's that's i get that one a lot of like you know you have to do this all the time like how do you do it and it's just like uh you know, you just, you do it because you have to. Yeah. Cause it's, I, uh,
0: cause I, I like to live a little bit longer or, yeah. like, you know, right. stuff like that.
1: <laughs> it's uh yeah. So that's, I would say that's the most common conversation I have. Of,
0: yeah.
1: You know, what, like, why do you have to do this so often? Or, you know, why do you do this? And it's sort of like a, that's where you have to lay it out in the black and white of like, if you don't do this, you're dead. Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. yeah. the unfortunate, like certain, pieces of it can't be sugar-coated mm-hmm. and I've learned that over time like I used to always tiptoe around like you can still be active and blah 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 and now I'm like you definitely can be active you just have to be smart
0: yeah exactly yeah so um I kind of want to get into like the CrossFit space because like that's how like yeah. you and I actually connected so and you talked about like when you're playing rugby um you started you kind of started to get into CrossFit so and how did you how did you first get into it? And, you know, what made you keep going
1: there? So it was probably I'm trying to think it was my sophomore year or my junior year. I was at like a family party and I saw some guy with a CrossFit shirt on. And this was when so I had lost a bunch of weight in high school right before going to college doing p90x and insanity Mm -hmm. like the beach body yeah like sort of the story everyone has of like this is how i got into exercising yep and i love those because i liked the aspect of like group led and you know everyone doing it together kind of thing Mm -hmm. and then through that sort of research on google like a crossfit thing popped up and i didn't really understand it i like was on went on the main page and was like well that's just one workout that'll take 15 minutes like I mean I was used to an hour hour and a half stuff like that and then I was at a family party saw a guy with a CrossFit shirt on asked him some questions about it he was like ex-military you know explained sort of the competitive side of it and so from there really researched it on the type that when I hear something I like I'll like dive head first into it mm-hmm. and learn everything there is um, so that happened from there started a CrossFit club at school and college because there was three or four other people that also did it and we were able to get funding and like buy nicer barbells and some pull-up bars and from there sort of took off and sort of end of college when I knew rugby was coming to an end I needed to fill that competitive void that Rugby gave me, so it started out as just cross training for rugby, and then as rugby ended, and I was like, I can't play rugby while being a nurse because I you know can't afford to break my face and break my hands anymore, Mm -hmm. things like that. So crossfit built that, and then from there, you know, got involved with competing and like competitive programming, and then sort of built and had an opportunity to get my level one when I lived in Memphis. And um, the owner of the gym there sort of offered. He was like, "You know, I'll pay for it, and you can work it off." And for me, who was working three days a week, you know, how am I going to fill the other four days? Yeah, I I basically lived in the gym anyways, so I might as well somewhat get paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there progressed to when I moved here, got an opportunity to go on full time coaching and PRN nursing, and. I figured now while I'm younger and can handle that the constant physical activity, I might as well jump in because I probably won't have an opportunity down the road to get paid a real full-time salary and have benefits through a coaching job. Mm-hmm. So that was the, that's sort of the like long winded version of how I skipped my way through it.
0: Yeah. So, so now since, you know, since you're coaching, what are like, how do you, how, what's your, what's your way of coaching like other people at, from the clients at the, at the box?
1: I think, so it's progressed. So now that I've been coaching close to six months now, I think what my idea of what coaching was has transformed a little bit. Um, I had one idea when I was part-time coaching because I wasn't, I was doing just like a few hours a week. Mm-hmm to now being there basically all day. Like it's a normal, somewhat normal job hours. Um, I've learned sort of the difference between being a competitive athlete and what that programming looks like and mindset looks like to the I want to work out or I want to lose weight. I just want to get healthy. So I try and meet, my biggest thing is meeting people where they are. Um, I think one of the best things that was explained to me was, unfortunately, as a coach, you can't want something more than the other person wants it. And sometimes you can help build that want, but people are going to push you away if you push them too hard. So you need, like, it's learning, if you have your competitive people who are like, I want to, you know, be the best, I want to work on things I'm bad at stuff like that you meet them up here but if you get someone who's nervous to be in the gym and sort of uncomfortable in their own body you've got to meet them with that confidence that you can get them there so i think it's very person to person how i approach the day
0: so do you have any do you have any like any like cues for like people with like certain lifts or anything like that that you can kind of like tell the tell the podcast world
1: i think the biggest thing I've learned is one, a lot of the lifts are, uh, like core involved because you forget that if you loosen in the core, like you're most likely going to lose the bar. Um, and then the other thing was when Olympic lifting was broken down for me as essentially you're just jumping off the ground. Like all it really is, is if you can keep the bar as straight as possible and you can jump off the ground, it, the bar will most likely follow the path you need it to. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some little nuances in there as far as like clean and jerk versus snatch, but the talk I have with the most people is straight bar path, drive off the floor, like you're jumping off the ground. And usually that's where it clicks because everyone knows how to jump because we've been jumping for our whole forever. lives yeah, forever. And most people know how to hold on to something. Mm hmm. So it's just a really complicated way of jumping and holding on to something. Yeah. Um, And then my favorite burpee cue is essentially you're falling down and getting back up. Yep. (laughs) I had this conversation last week and because everyone fears burpees because they're hard. You are usually out of breath when you get there. They don't help you get your breath back. And so I've described it to people as how many times have you fallen down and just stood back up and been fine. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that was that one's worked really well. Also,
0: very cool, very cool. So now with you kind of like doing the remote coaching, how is that different? How has that been a little bit different compared to you know being in the box compared to like watching somebody on like a Zoom conference meeting?
1: It so remote coaching is very interesting. It has been so I've seen both sides because I'm also someone's remote athlete. So I've reached out to him a lot for input and sort of how to do it. Um, But along with that, it's again, figuring out where people are. So at this time where we're all working out from home, we all have different equipment. We all have different motivation because for some people, the only reason they worked out was because their friends work out at the gym and their friends are there at the same time. Mm -hmm. And now that you take their friends out, like what? Why are they doing it? Kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so reminding people why they got into it, how good they felt when they were having physical activity, and then also keeping people. We've noticed as a team that keeping our remote clients on a schedule, it doesn't have to be exactly what they were on previously, but it has helped our number of people working out if they know. I used to work out at 4.30 in the afternoon every day. So I'm going to wake up at 8 a.m., be in bed by 10 or 11, sort of do what I need to do during the day, whether they're working their jobs remotely or if they work at the hospital. We have a bunch of people like that. um, They're still working out at the same time. So Mm -hmm. it brings some normalcy into that. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working with a lot of people on creating some kind of normal in this time where everything's abnormal. yeah. Um, So that's been the biggest sort of challenge, but rewarding when you tell someone like this is going to be, what's going to bring you success. And then two or three days later, they're like, Oh wow. Um, That, and I've wrote, I got a chance I'm writing a program for one of our clients. So he was not super on board with the programming that was being written which some people, because it's at home stuff, like some people are just bored with certain at home movements. And so they just need something a little bit different. So I've gotten to practice where I'm going into week four now. So I'm writing his fourth week today. And I think that's been good practice on sort of like what my style of programming from a coaching standpoint is and what I think is sort of important and what's paid off and, he especially wants to build stronger shoulder strength. So that's been sort of a bias that we're working through too on this time.
0: Very cool. So what's, what's your theory on like programming? Like what are you like doing the most or what do you like, like adding? Like you could do like a cardio piece here, strength, or like what, what is your way of programming?
1: So I like the setup of strength followed by conditioning. But that being said, I've thrown in for him one day a week, we do a hypertrophy day. So like old school bicep curls, triceps, um, chest stuff, because I think there's a few aspects of CrossFit that I think have somewhat been forgotten. And, you know, sort of those support muscles that you do get when you do movements like bicep curls and things like that will pay off. And then I also have him once a week sprinting. So I saw pretty significant, not only just like strength boost, but it's just the changing up of the environment in sort of in sprint work. Mm-hmm. So I have him doing one week. He does run sprints the next week. He's doing rowing sprints because he luckily has a rower. And so we do like a, Lower body specific, upper body specific, as far as the strength cycle goes. And then he has a hypertrophy day, sprint day, and then another sort of mix between upper and lower.
0: Okay, very cool.
1: On that fifth day. Yeah. And then the conditioning sort of tossed in there based on what we had done for the strength movement. I'll look at you know volume, like he's gotten over that time in the strength to decide how much and what we need to hit in each conditioning piece.
0: Okay, very cool. So <clears throat> you said you, you're doing remote you're – do, you're, you're getting remote coaching. So who is that with and uh, what is that like?
1: So his name's Ben Skutnik. Um, he is involved with Power Athlete, but he also – this is sort of a side project, I would say, because he's not normally coaching CrossFit athletes. But he's getting his Ph.D. at University of Louisville in exercise science. Mm-hmm. So from a knowledge standpoint, as like someone who what originally sort of attracted me to his style was I'm super like nerd it out about like the reasons behind and why we're doing what we're doing and you know different energy systems and things like that. I think he somewhat has a higher intel well he definitely has a higher intelligence as far as programming and the human body goes. But it has created sort of a different style of training while still doing CrossFit. And so we have done cycles that you would never see in normal competitive CrossFit because I have very specific holes that needed to be worked on and then areas that didn't need to be worked on. So like raw strength has never really been a problem, Mm -hmm. but gymnastics and some of that... Like longer endurance pieces were. So, we've worked on, you know, lactate threshold work and sprinting, like I said. And we've done a bunch of like cycles of different hanging movements and things that like Carl Paoli and the freestyle program, stuff that they do, like true gymnastics, things you would see in a gymnastics gym. Mm -hmm. From the very basic level, I'm sure there's five six year olds that could beat me in ninety percent of gymnastics movements, but we're breaking it down that far to sort of build our way up.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. so how did you how did you meet him again?
1: So he was at our gym at Derby City CrossFit and when they first moved here. so he moved here around a year ago, and I was sort of toying around with what program I wanted to use. And I had talked to him a few times about just general CrossFit stuff. Um, And he was basically, I was like, what do you think between, I was debating between DECA and at the time I was doing the Mayhem programming. Mm -hmm. And the Mayhem programming was great, but the volume was destroying me. Because at the time I was working three night shifts a week and, also trying to maintain normal life. Yeah. So I sent him the programs and he was like, well, how about you do this? And so he sent me this data analysis and it was a list of strength movements, uh, benchmark workouts, running times, all this stuff. And he he was like, do these, you know, you can use old times on stuff you have done or if you haven't done them, do them. So regionals workouts, things like that sent him all the information and he was basically like it's graded on like a your regionals level in this stuff because it's all sort of based on the old model of regionals not sanctionals mm-hmm. um and he was like this is where you're at a level where you could be competitive there this is where you are lacking and you need to find something that's biased to these weaknesses and he was like you know you can either Go with one of these programs because they'll hit those things. Or if you want, you can come on as one of my athletes, and I'll write for you and be specific to what my needs are.
0: Cool. So and do you? So, have, so I know, I know you have like a barbell and weights, but do you have anything else at all? Like, or how are you, how are you doing the gymnastics work? Work it from at from at home.
1: So I've got barbell weights. I built a squat rack. Um, I did the like $50 DIY squat rack. Um, and then I built a, I have a back porch and there's, it's sort of, it's a double decker porch. And so I built a pull-up bar between two of the supports. Okay. So I got like one inch galvanized steel piping and mounted it in. And so far so good. I've done muscle ups on it. I've done hanging work on it. Um, and then a lot of the gymnastics uh, we do inside.
0: Okay. So like handstand pushups, like everything inside. and
1: Yeah. So we'll do handstand pushups outside on the side of the house. Mm-hmm. And I have siding on my house. So every once in a while you can catch a heel and like don't get
0: <laughs> yeah, yep.
1: where you want. But uh, from an aspect of where I would have expected my fitness level being given what I have, it's worked out really well. Yeah. Like it's sort of, it's frustrating in the aspect of like when days it rains, we go and we work out in someone, a member's basement and not having sort of normal circumstances. But I would expect that I've made a lot of gains in this time when I think it would be really easy to slide down the slope.
0: Yeah. No, here. Yet. I I I think I think well, I mean with with your you got your own personal programming which is amazing cuz it's programmed to you compared to like, you know, I'm doing I'm doing um what is it called? Uh comp train right now and it's like it's it's programmed for, you know, their their higher up individuals and kind of like the lower individuals, but like it's not specific f- to me at all, but like, you know, I just yeah. need to work on a, definitely a couple of things like handstand push-ups. And obviously other Gymnastics stuff because I'm like 6'6", and so it's a lot harder for me to do those yeah. movements. So, I mean, I, I would love to do like my own individual program, but it's like, you know, is it worth the money? Or like, where am I going to go with this? And so,
1: yeah, I think um, like most things, it your goal has to be laid out of like, why am I doing this? So with my dreams to be to like go to a sanctional and things like that, um, and diabetes has sort of fueled that too because that's not an avenue that you see people in who have, Yeah, you know, I'm going to put in quotes, diseases, because I'm one of those people that's like, diabetes isn't a disease. Um, but it, the only way to really get there effectively, like I think you can get there following normal programming, but a lot of it has to come down to where were you before you started this. Mm-hmm. And the most efficient way for me to get there was to find someone to program for me who was not going to sugarcoat it and was going to be like, you suck at handstand walking or you need to do you know 50 unbroken pull-ups or whatever it might be. Um or you need to get better at muscle ups so you're gonna have a day where you just do muscle ups even though it's gonna be super frustrating, it will pay off in the end.
0: Yeah. Very cool, very cool. Yeah. So um I know you 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 wear you still wear a pump, right? I do. Okay, yeah. so how does how does that how does that handle with you doing like the gymnastic movements or doing like any like cross movements? Has it gotten like pulled off the site has the second pulled off or anything?
1: Yes, so I, luckily it stays on for the most part. Um, it'll be that like day two and a half of it being in yeah. that you end up all like sweated out or um, I'll catch it on something. The biggest issue I have is I break clips. So the pump clip where it clips on your pants mm-hmm. will like, I'll catch it clean or something and the pump will be lined up the wrong way and you'll feel it like snap. Mm -hmm. And you just hope it holds on long enough for you to stand up. (laughs) Yeah. So that's sort of the, the only real issue I run into is like gymnastics wise, I'm pretty good. The clips on the Medtronic pumps hold pretty tight, Mm -hmm. but during certain like lifts, like if I'm doing touch and go snatches or something like that, I'll feel it moving and every once in a while it'll come flying off. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I would say I'm somewhat impressed with its ability to hold on.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't have a pump or anything like that, so I really don't know, you know. Because I, I always see people when they work out, their like sites get ripped off like all the time, and you know, yeah. I have never had that situation because I'm on whole since since I started. So, so it's have, um, so you, I've always been on. pump. Yeah. So. so have you ever tried? The, ever thought about doing the Omnipod at all? Or
1: I so I tried an Omnipod. It was too big for what I was doing. So I was losing more Omnipods because I sweat a lot Yeah, and they're heavier. Mm -hmm. So they're just like more likely to sort of peel their way off. I also didn't trust myself remembering the PDM piece Mm -hmm. because I would be the type that, you know, would take a shower and I know now to like clip my pump back on. But if I didn't have to do that, I could see myself like getting changed and walking out the door.
0: Yeah. You completely forget, yeah. So all right. So last last two questions. So um the first one is what would you say to a new onset a new new diabetic?
1: I would say you know, biggest thing, it's not the end of the world. You're gonna have a big learning phase. And I think a lot of it is you need to be okay with not being okay for a little while. Um I would Like, I think I would describe diabetes as like, you know, you're sitting around a campfire and when the campfire gets a little bit too big and it's a little too close to you, but it's not sort of dangerous, but you can't like just walk away from it. Um, I think that's the best way I would describe it. It's sort of like this control that will occasionally get too big and occasionally be small, but you learn as much as you can find out as much as you can from people around you and then on top of it if you have the ability to have a support system that's going to bring you leaps and bounds so that can be people on Instagram like this where you know we've tossed ideas around to each other or you know now that I live with my girlfriend she's like super big support system she has learned and had to understand it so you know letting those people around you in because I'm not the type that would normally do that. But I think for the safety of you and for them to be comfortable, it's going to pay off. Um, The more people know and the more you explain that it's not, you know, the end of the world. And then like when it all boils down to it, having confidence in yourself and knowing yourself is the number one thing.
0: Cool. Very cool. And so where, where can people reach out to you if they have any questions or want to ask you like something?
1: Yeah, so I would say Instagram is probably the best route. Um, typically, I would—I know it's frowned upon to throw your phone number onto the internet, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, <laughs> my my Instagram handle is uh, Solo Snyder, and then I'm also on Facebook. So I'll happily, you know, answer any questions. I've sort of, after 16 years of this, have been through almost every scenario you could come up with, I imagine, and so. If people have questions or just even if it's like there's kind of that like there's no stupid question because chances are i've thought about it and just never thought to ask anyone yeah so, um, that's usually the best that's the best way to reach out and um any way i can kind of help people through um i'd be happy to
0: mm. now since you have that one remote co uh you're coaching one person would you be willing to like do like if anybody has any interest to start like doing personal training through you, would you be willing to give them like programs at all or
1: yes yeah, so if it's it's definitely something that I could work out with someone I think it would uh we'd have to make sure we were sort of on the same page, but that being said um it's not something I'm against. I think that it would be really cool to find you know help coach someone who is a diabetic or even if they're not a diabetic and they just think you know the coaching ideas sound like they line up with their goals then i would be happy to do it i think that'd be great
0: okay awesome well dude thank you so much for being on the podcast this is i, I i'm i'm glad we're actually finally talking you know person to person instead of through like yeah through dms and stuff but yes thank you so much and i hope you have a good rest of the day perfect thank you all right see you man I'm oh